Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always is Toby. Hi Toby. Hi Simon. And also with us today is our special guest Kevin Schultz, Professor of History, Catholic Studies and Religious Studies and Associate Chair of the Department of History at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Kevin is also the author of Buckley and Mailer, The Difficult Friendship That Shaped the 1960s, and Tri-Faith America, How Post-War Catholics and Jews held America to Protestant promise. Kevin, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. First of all, Kevin, welcome to the Impressions of America podcast. It's great to have you with us. Now, today's episode is primarily focused on the liberal consensus, which occurred in post-war America. But first, could you tell us a little about your most recent book on William F. Buckley and Norman Mailer? Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so the book is is about the friendship not about these guys necessarily, but about the friendship between these two guys. And obviously you have to learn about the guys in order to understand the friendship. And, um, you know, getting my PhD in history and studying history and reading history and being a history buff like you two, I always had sort of a sense of what the 1960s were, especially in the United States. And I always kind of hated it. I, I, I sort of saw the hippies and the flower children and the, Casting off of rules, and you know, I appreciated the question authority attitude as a good American might, but I also thought that it was trite and lightweight, and and got mired down in drugs, and I kind of hated it. Partly, you know, like a standard child who rejects and rebels against their parents, that's what I was doing. But being a historian, I realized that I couldn't just hate it based on impressions, and so nagging at me was always the sense that I wanted to really know what happened in the 1960s. How did this decade that started off sort of like madmen with skinny ties and, and a placid sense that rational technical bureaucracies were going to conquer the world, how did it devolve into this freewheeling uh, battle where Americans on the left and on the right were literally shooting at each other in the streets, trying to blow each other up, trying to blow up the whole American project. And I decided that I really needed a, to, to, to do some historical work, some serious historical work to figure out what happened in the 1960s. And a lot of the other good coverages are great books on the 60s, and there are a ton of them, but none of them really sort of figured it out for me. And I was up late finishing another book that I was writing, and I was reading a magazine, and there was an interview that had some letters from William F. Buckley. His art, He had just died, and his archives had just been sold and released. And um, in the letters, I saw one of them between William F. Buckley and Norman Mailer. And the tone was so witty. They were so funny. They were so mean to each other mm -hmm. that you could just tell they were good friends who kind of respected each other. But they were also so deep and they were so um, exquisitely introspective about what was happening in the United States of the 1960s that it demanded to me a further investigation. I needed to see what was at the root of this friendship. And luck would have it for me that sure enough, their friendship starts in 1962 and it, it trails off in the early 70s. They remain friends until the end of their lives, but it trails off uh, in, the, in the 1970s. 
And so I thought through this, these letters, these dozens and dozens of letters, these numerous interactions, these reviews of each other's books, that through their friendship, I could kind of tell a story of the 1960s. And especially because one of them was approaching the 60s from the left, that would be Norman Mailer, the great author. The other one was approaching the 60s from the right, that's William F. Buckley, who listeners of your podcast will know all about. And here they were just squaring off to these brilliant intellectuals. And uh, yeah, it was really through a chronicle of their friendship that I could tell a story of what the 1960s were about and what happened through the course of that dynamic decade. And another thing that your podcast listeners will know all about, how the 1960s uh, left us with this really badly divided nation over here where you've got the populists of the right facing off against the populists against the left, all of them hating the centrism and the middle ground. Uh, that's been a rebellion that's been going on since the 1960s, sort of foreshadowed by these two guys, and definitely which has taken on epic proportions, not only in the United States, but throughout Western Europe and even the world today. From my impression of the book, I mean, William F. Buckley in terms of public policy and Norman Mailer in terms of almost like social liberalism, that we... Um, the world we have today almost is an inheritance of, of those two men. Not not to go, you know, to take a straight great man view of history, but you know, in some ways, I mean, looking at their lives and looking at their impact on the sixties, um, it definitely allows us to trace a line, an intellectual line, from the the late fifties to the time that we live today. Oh, it's even way more. It's even way more interesting than that, actually, Toby, mm. uh, because. Yes, you're right. I see what you're saying, where the left and the right squared off against each other. But what both of these men realized when they engaged with, especially the women's movement, but also the civil rights movement, a lot of the minority rights movements that that grew out of the late 1960s and continue to live with us today in, in calls for diversity and calls for multiculturalism, mm -hmm. um, they were not really ready to accept or even understand what those movements were about. So while they were great critics of the world in which they lived in, the sort of liberal order of the 1950s and 1960s, they also were very much in it with both feet. And so when the world moved on, sort of jumping from the springboard that was their critiques and crafted a whole new world, a new left that Norman Mailer couldn't even imagine and a new right that William F. Buckley couldn't even imagine. Mm -hmm. Moved beyond them, they sort of said, what did we start? How have our children moved well beyond the critiques that we hoped they would ever move in? So yeah, I mean, you can start to see their ideas as a foundation for the trajectory where the left and right are facing off in the way, mm -hmm. but they were much more mired in their culture and their times, 1950s, 1960s. And they would, um, I think both of them, they were very, very critical of the left and the right, respectively, the movements that they purportedly started as they moved into the 1970s and especially on into the 80s, 90s. And God only knows what they would say about today's times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I do definitely see what you're saying, and especially with Norman Mailer, uh, some of the writing that he had started to be criticized for being, you know, almost like um, anti-feminist in, in a way. So, yeah, I mean... And I mean, Buckley did lose um, some of his control in, uh, of the conservative movement, definitely, in um, with people appealing to uh, the ideas of like, Ayn Rand, Murray Rothbard, and, and other people like that. Yeah. So, yeah. That, um, hmm. <laughs> but before, but I mean, we have gone through the, the 60s, but before the bloodletting of the 60s, there, there was a, a world that, you know, existed. So, um, so let's move on to 
the, the liberal consensus. Yeah, one of the fascinating things to me about the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, especially as we look back on it, um, you know, from today's perspective, it is it is universally panned down as as being blind to the um, the requirements of the civil rights movement, being blind to women's rights, being blind to all the minority rights, and that is all true. I'm not here to deny any of that stuff. That is all true. But I also think, and part of the book is, you know, like everything, it had some good things and some bad things. Then, and one of the things that the 1940s, 50s, and 60s taught us is that we as a society here in the United States, we know how to create a middle class. This mm -hmm. isn't voodoo science. In the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, with things like the GI Bill of Rights, with things like uh, federal home loan uh, uh, guarantees, with things like education guarantees, we actually created as a government an educated middle class that was the wealthiest society in the history of the world. And let's think about that for a second. It is indisputed that it was the wealthiest society in the history of the world. And not only that, but that wealth was dispersed more broadly than it ever had been before and it ever has been since. Uh -huh. In other words, the middle class was fatter than it ever was uh -huh. and than it ever has been. So not only were we the wealthiest society the world has ever seen in the United States, but that wealth was distributed more fairly and more equitably than at any time before or since. So yes, uh, there are huge problems with the 1950s and the liberal consensus um, and huge blind spots. Uh, and yet, I think if we just want to dismiss it, we're throwing a lot of the baby out with the bathwater. I think there are some things that we need to recognize that were good. And now, if we, you know, thinking about moving forward in terms of policy, we need to rectify some of those wrongs. So, but to get, in, in yeah. terms of the 1950s, what do you think was the intellectual basis of the sort of the bureaucratization and the government spending of the, the, the 1950s? Yeah, that's a great question. Go ahead. Um, so I'm thinking about sort of Keynesianism. That did both the Democrats and the Republicans feel that Keynes Keynes's ideas were right? Yes, indisputably yes. There's no other way to say it. When uh, there was a slight economic slowdown in the 1950s, President Eisenhower, a Republican, spent more money, government money, and put it into the military, which would then buy jets and buy Navy boats and hire more people. And then that money would multiply to, to um, which is definitional Keynesianism, right? Multiplier <laughs> um, effect, of course. Exactly. And so that was one of the great shocks um, of the 1930s when the Great Depression overtook the whole world. Um, it wasn't necessarily Karl Marx who was right in his predictions, as right as he might have been in his diagnosis of the problems of capitalism. His uh -huh. predictions turned out to be, at least so far as history tells it, completely wrong. Because it wasn't sort of the workers that came to save capitalism, but capitalism honed itself to save capitalism in the name of John Maynard Keynes. Mm -hmm. And so by pumping money into the into programs and by using these multiplying factors, not only through in the United States through the New Deal, but especially through World War II, uh, the United States was ever was able to ballast the ship that was its economy. 
And so in the, after the war in the 40s and 50s and in the early 1960s, and even through the 60s and on into the 70s to a large extent, uh, Keynesianism ran triumphant because it had proven itself to be right. Yes, there was some tinkering with general Keynesian rules, but absolutely by tinkering with the money, by offering, by operating in a deficit economy, that kind of thing, both the Republicans and the Democrats were completely attuned to sort of that sense of, of corporate friendly capitalism. Uh, you might be aware, I'm sure you are, as history buffs that you are, uh, the famous quotation from the head of General Motors, who was coming up to be Secretary of Defense, when he said, you know, he, when they were asked about conflict of interest, and he said, I can't imagine there would be a policy of the federal government that would be bad for General Motors, and vice versa. There was a general sense that the federal government was operating for the good of corporate America and vice versa. There was a general sense that corporate America was operating on the good on behalf of the United States. Uh, I think that is completely gone now, but it's it's hard to fathom that it was only 50 years ago that that was the general sense of the American population, both Republican and Democrat. Wow. So there really was a harmony of interests in, in that sense. But I, I do want to go on one slight revision. Um, so what about the United Auto Workers? Because, I mean, they appealed to Keynesianism as well, but they also, I mean, Walter Ruther said that he wanted a planned economy. How how did things like that, you know, having a planned economy, a more socialistic economy than even the Keynesian model? How, how do you think that went with Democrats and the Republicans at the time? Well, I think that the economy was so good through the 40s, 50s, and 60s that unions sort of accepted the general agreement. I mean, mm -hmm. gone were the days of rampant socialism, whatever you want to, however you want to define that. That was never Walter Ruther's call. Mm -hmm. um, Walter Ruther's call was for more rights and more benefits for the workers. Corporations were doing so well in this general agreement they had with the federal government that they agreed to do things like, much to the detriment of, of later generations, they agreed to do things like fund general health care. Mm -hmm. So rather than have a single payer universal health care system like they developed where you all are living, we ended up having a health care system that was dependent on mostly corporate and big business jobs. Uh, I get my health insurance, for instance, from the University of Illinois system through the University of Illinois Chicago. I don't get through a federalized single payer system. And we still have that system today in the United States. And Walter Ruther, you know, in his socialist dreams might have demanded a single payer system, but he was quite happy to get the benefits that they were getting from corporate America uh, in the 1950s because workers' paychecks were getting so much fatter. Unemployment was so low. Unions were getting large percentages or large portions of what they want. Let's not forget that in the 1950s, that was the era of the decade when the greatest percentage of Americans belonged to a union. So unions gave up a good bit of their radical edge, but they did so because they were getting so many other benefits. You might see it cynically and say that they were being bought off, but if you're being bought off by higher wages for workers and greater benefits, that's sort of what a union is supposed to be doing. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that is true. But they still did fight for things like the fair deal, which which were extensions beyond um, what um, the the sort of congressional consensus was looking to provide um, Americans with. Yeah, the fair deal. Um you know, it might be seen as a failed, it was definitely failed, last attempt to bring some sort of um, 
some sort of New Deal radicalism. That's the wrong word. Some sort of New Deal. Uh, well, we can go with radicalism back into the federal back back into the federal consensus. But that, fail, that fails in 1946 and isn't really brought back ever after that. Mm. Now, if I may, I'd like to go on to another key theme of uh, of the time during this liberal consensus, and that is anti-communism. Kevin, what are your thoughts on the role that anti-communism played in the liberal consensus? And could you tell us just a little bit more about anti-communism at that time? So you bring up the question of anti-communism, and it's actually quite vital in this liberal consensus. It um, was not necessarily a key component of it. I think the key components of it were a firm belief in rational thought that the bureaucrats were going to solve all of our problems. It was a belief in this corporate capitalism whereby the federal government had friendly relations with American corporations. Um, I think the role of anti-communism was really important because it helped cement these ideas in place, which I, by which I mean, if you step too far beyond the ideas that make up the liberal consensus, the things like corporate capitalism, well, then the federal government or the McCarthyites or your boss or whatever it may be can just slap you down with charges of anti-communism. Uh, so, you know, if you get too far radical in your demands, like some of the unions might have been in the 1940s, they would just get slapped down for their anti for their for being agents of the communist government. So in the book, I actually I actually like this description. So I'm going to sell it once again here, and maybe people will actually believe me. Yeah. I, I imagine I imagine the central ideas of the liberal order as being like a triptych, like paintings, with rational thought, with uh, corporate capitalism, and with a, a, a series of important social rules about respecting authority and all that kind of stuff. And the gilded edge that goes all the way around the framing of this is anti-communism, which means all of these work very well because of charges of communism and how they can be leveraged in order to keep people in line and keep people in order. I think anti-communism was really vital to, to both what you know, Buckley and Mailer were saying. Um, they, they, they sort of provided a, a, a rule, I mean, a, a, a baton by which they could beat anybody who stepped outside these bounds. Of course, Mailer railed against this, and pro properly so. And Buckley, for his part, thought Americans were too weak when it came to anti-communism. Um, so both of these guys sort of represented kind of where the left and the right would go. And that was part of the, the sort of uh, uh, appeal of them to younger generations. But for the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s, anti-communism worked to sort of keep this sort of limited liberal consensus in order and in line. I think it was a vital part, and it's unclear to me that without something like anti-communism, those kinds of rules could be maintained and constrained. I haven't thought too much about that. I do know that anti-communism provided a key lever in balancing out the sort of twin impulses of conservatism in America. Basically, the American conservatives, like conservatives everywhere, um, are divided in a way between a traditional kind of conservatism where you're like Edmund Burke and you're actually trying to conserve some, some good parts of the old order. Change mm -hmm. can happen, but slowly. That's sort of a traditional conservatism. And then there's another part of conservatism, which Toby brought up a little bit earlier, uh, and that was libertarianism. Uh, these two things do not go hand in hand at all. Libertarianism does not lend itself to sort of an Edmund Burkean kind of conservatism. 
But nonetheless, these have become the twin pillars of American Republican thinking, American conservatism. And the only way these two prevented, uh, did not break down into civil war throughout the 1940s, 50s, and 60s was because they could all reliably fall back on being anti-communists. They both were tremendously overtly anti-communist, and that could quell any difference between the two. In the 19, later 1960s, and especially the 1970s, anti-communism began to break down, especially with the Vietnam War, as a cornerstone ballast separating these two. And one might say that ever since then, the libertarian impulse has gone to war against the, the sort of traditional conservative impulse and increasingly won out. This is where the Ayn Rand thought thinking, today the Koch brothers kind of thinking, it's very much in the libertarian mold of conservatism, which is continuing to continuing to leverage itself, becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. And I mentioned earlier where Buckley, sort of the children of the movements that Buckley and Mailer started grew past them. Buckley hated to have to differentiate between these two threads of conservatism. He was the master of braiding them together and finding them, uh, finding common ground between them. And so he absolutely hated to have to, 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 to sort of pick between these two. Uh, ultimately, I think that's still the battle that's going on within conservatism and especially in the United States. Um, I think what we're seeing increasingly so since the 1970s is the rise of libertarian alternative and the pushback against taxes, the pushback against the sense of common weal in the United States. Uh, Buckley absolutely hated all of that. Now, you talked about the growth of the middle class during the liberal consensus. And while that was a successful time for white picket fence America, that middle class growth in the liberal consensus was ultimately built on an unstable foundation with its inability to embrace the civil rights movement, perhaps the largest of those flaws. When you consider the rise of the civil rights movement, do you think it's fair or unfair to say that the collapse of the liberal consensus was inevitable? Boy, inevitable. That's a strong word. Um, <laughs> I, I have no idea. I mean, the safe answer for me is to say absolutely it was not inevitable. It was dependent on the brave and righteous actions of numerous people who stood up and said that they did not want to be included in a society that was so blind to the poverty and disregard and lack of concern about people just because of the color of their skin or their sexual orientation or their ethnic background or their religion. I mean, I think it took hundreds of thousands of really brave souls to demand that the United States recognize them both politically and socially slash economically. So no, I don't think anything like that was ever inevitable. Um, and, and that's a shout out to the fact that history is made up of people who make decisions and perform actions every single day, including you and me and all of your listeners. Um, I do think, however, that there were significant structural problems with the liberal consensus. And the most vital of which was a sense of, uh, an erroneous sense of inflexibility about who could be included, about a required adherence to the kind of rules of society where authority needed to be respected and things like that. I think that, that there were some, some mistakes and some structural problems. And one of the things that both Buckley and Mailer were really good at, this is actually, I'd say, where their, some of their genius really lied, was in identifying those structural weaknesses 
in identifying the problems with the American dream as defined by the 1950s and 1960s uh, liberal consensus as the white picket fence, as you, as you call it. Um, I think they didn't know what would happen to other people who heard their critiques and then tried to demand the creation of a new society. I think they were completely blindsided by that. I also think they were completely blindsided by the power of the critiques of African-Americans in the civil rights movement, especially, and women uh, in the women's rights movement, especially the women's liberation movement. Um, I think they, they just didn't see that coming because they were trapped in their own mindset about what the role of black people should be and about what the role of women should be. Um, so so I, I, I think that there were structural problems that when pressured like any structural problem on a bridge or anything like that, they could cause the collapse of the whole bridge. I think that's sort of what we saw. Um, silly me, I actually think that the lessons, there are lots of lessons we can learn and we can rebuild the bridge, repairing some of the foundational problems, but recognizing also some of the good that came out of the, that society. Um, I think that people, one of the fascinating things when I was writing this book, it was so interesting to me. Um, you know, people on the left love Mailer, people on the right love Buckley, and they loved each other in a weird kind of frenemy way that I really think was profound and tremendously moving. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that really struck me was how stupid they were when it came to race and sex. And, and by sex, I mean gender, women. Both of these guys, you know, if you want to root on the left, you want to be a Mailer fan, well, Mailer had every stereotype about black people that you could possibly imagine from overt black sexuality to the life of the hustle. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it was just like every overt stereotype about black people. He loved it. He appreciated them because in his mind, in his wrongheaded stereotypical mind, they were able to live outside the rules of normalcy. They were able to strut the streets of Harlem and treat women however they wanted to treat and be all the pimps and hookers that they could, pot you know, he had this <laughs> impression of what black people were. And it led to this amazing interaction, these two essays, uh, this, this famous, famous essay by Norman Mailer called The White Negro. Yeah, and it was about how he wanted to be the white guy. He loved these white, he called them hipsters, which has taken on a whole new meaning today. But he saw them and they what they were doing is nothing less than embodying this black gleefulness about saying screw you to society and just living by their 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 sex drive, living by the 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 dry, you know, all the id in their body. And he loved it. And this great, there's this one of these famous, famous, famous essays that I would that I would entreat everybody to go read. James Baldwin, who was also friends with both of these guys in a weird kind of way, he wrote a beautiful essay in Esquire called "A Black Boy Looks at a White Boy," and it explains very calmly how Norman Mailer, as as much as he was trying to be sympathetic with what he saw as the cause of black people everywhere, was just a victim of all the stereotypes society, these structural inequalities in society had taught Norman Mailer to see. It was just this fascinating, beautiful essay. Um, Buckley's, Buckley's thought on, on civil rights and black people was as you might expect, because we're seeing so many resonances of it today, um, was sort of uh, different. He did not necessarily appreciate the sort of life of the ghetto as Mailer saw it. And instead, he saw 
black people as failing to take advantage of what America had given them, which in his mind was a good public education, plentiful middle class jobs, things like that. And so he put the square, the blame squarely on black people and their own initiative. We've come to see this argument, what we call today the, the, the bootstraps argument, mm -hmm. which is essentially this idea that my people, my white people, my European ancestors came to the United States from some bog in some forest in Central Europe. And within a generation or two, we were able to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and get an education. And now we're the firm, solid middle class owning houses and property. And why haven't black people done that? They've been freed from the bonds of slavery since 1865, 1863, depending on where they lived, and yet they still suffer. This has to be a problem that black people need to fix for themselves. And so they should pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Of course, this argument is totally 100% ignorant of any of the structural inequalities. The fact that home buying was a near impossibility for African-Americans, especially in neighborhoods that were appreciating. The GI Bill was limited by race. So there were no black people, for instance, allowed to go to the University of Georgia after World War II. So, I mean, it ignores all of these structural inequalities that are so foundational to American life. So they both flat out got race wrong, both from the left and the right. So it's no wonder that when the civil rights movement comes along, it says we can't trust the left or the right. White liberals now are just as useless as white conservatives. We need to get them to see the world differently. And by doing that, they had to necessarily point out all of these structural inequalities. And I mean, all these structural problems with the liberal order. Something similar happens when it comes to women. Um, same line, it's Jermaine Greer, who is the James Baldwin figure here. She's this great and really friendly and really pugnacious and really brilliant feminist. And she points out both the, overlay, over, the overlaying sexual nature that Mailer wants to see, um, see women in and the sort of domesticated ideal that Buckley wants to see women in. And she points out the flaws in both of these arguments as well. So yeah, I don't think it was necessarily inevitable that these were going to ruffle the feathers of the liberal order, but I do think that they created these huge, giant, severing crevices in the foundation of the liberal order. And rather than try and buttress up the foundation, I think the American population in turn tore down most of the bridge. That's fantastic. So how do you think all of these things that we see in the liberal order, how do you think those things were diffused or, or distributed to people in the news and the media in, in, in that time? Yeah, good question. Media played a, uh, a very different role than the kind of, of media that we have today. Uh, in a lot of real ways, I think that the media were not necessarily the policemen, that's the wrong word, but they were definitely <laughs> representatives and upholders of this liberal order. Because they were policing a consensus, weren't they, in some, in some ways? Yes, I guess they were. And, and now that I think about it, because they were deciding what stories were newsworthy, what stories were, uh, were, were worthy of being reported. And as they always say about news, you know, look for virtue where you find vice and vice where you expect virtue. Um, and, and I think that's the kind of the definition of vice and virtue change over time. And so I think, you know, being a communist now or a left wing would have been a, a terrible vice in the 1950s. And now Bernie Sanders was almost the Democratic nominee and he's an overt socialist, for instance. Mm -hmm. 
But so, what would you say to Buckley's critique of the of the media that it was too moderate? You know, you couldn't speak of knights and ladies, villains and knaves anymore. Buckley wanted a more sort of radical approach to um, sort of uh, talking in the media. Do, do you think that the media in the in the fifties was um, too conformist in that way? Uh, too conformist. I don't know. I think, I think I would put it so differently. The structures of the media, just like pure how the commercials work, how mm-hmm. the news channels receive, how the viewers get access to it. It was so different then. I mean, David Suskin ran this amazing program called uh, Open Mind. And he would bring on interesting people, Buckley and Mailer among them. Mm-hmm. And the show would start and it would go as long as David Suskin wanted it to go. I mean, that is unfathomable in today's commercial driven market media mm-hmm. um, to, to a large degree. And people watched it because it was fascinating and it was interesting. Um, I think the fact that there were fewer channels actually made a huge difference back then because if you wanted to receive your news, you could only watch a handful of channels. Um, and so they were all reporting on similar things, whether that's good or bad, um, ask a philosopher that question. But what it did do is that it created a sense of what was newsworthy, of what the boundaries of good taste were, of what people should be talking about and paying attention to. It created a sense that there was a national conversation. Um, They might have missed things. Surely they absolutely did. I mean, think of how much time is devoted to weather on the news. Who cares about the weather? Tell us about what's going on with factories and what's going on with health insurance and hospitals and important things. But instead, we talk about the weather for like 12 minutes a day. Um, Yes. The critique um, that Norman Mailer, when he said, you know, the shits are killing us, the idea that people like... um, David Weisman and, and, and Arthur Schlesinger Jr. weren't really seeing um, the, the, the need to sort of speak to people uh, in a truthful way. I think Irvin Howe said this as well, that, that, that uh, a consensus is almost the betrayal of self, you know? Uh, yeah, yes, yes, yes. I mean, I don't know what we mean by consensus, I guess, mm-hmm. um, because there's ample room for disagreement. And the the definition of, of a political conversation, even a political constituency, in some ways, are the boundaries of what acceptable conversations can happen. And that changes over time, as it should. Mm-hmm. But I think in the 1950s, there was ample room within the so-called consensus um, for, for many conversations about what was right and what was wrong, what the role of the government should and shouldn't be. Um, I, I, I think that Irving Howe was making a really excellent point, but I think it might be a little bit overstated that that it was that it was so limited that it denied all individuality. Um, I do think that the fact that it was controlled by corporations presented itself as increasing problems. But think about the import of Walter Cronkite's critique of Vietnam. Uh, as as Lyndon Johnson said, you know, well, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost Middle America. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, I think the fact, I'm not a Luddite by any stretch of the imagination, but I think the internet and the fact that we have multiple ways to get multiple sources of information, I think it's, it's, it's been, I think we need to weigh the costs because I think there are significant and important and vital costs. Even like the expansion of cable, cable television now, where I can go and watch darts if I want to watch darts, 
or I can go and watch politics from my particular perspective if I want to do that, or I can not pay attention at all. It means that it's much more difficult to have a national conversation than it would have been even 20 years ago when I was growing up. Um, and so I think I think that the critiques of when there were limited avenues of conversation, I think they're fair that both Buckley and Mailer were making. Mm -hmm. I think that we also today need to not say, see, that was the problem and, and say what we have today is better because I'm not 100% sure that what we have today is much better. And I think the fact that we may very well be denying ourselves the very essence of any sort of commonweal, that we're all in this project together, I think that is more dangerous than the fact that the national conversation, certain voices were cut off and limited at certain times. Now, we don't have much time with you left, unfortunately, but before you go, I'd like to get some of your thoughts on if you see any parallels between how Buckley was able to disrupt the established media with the National Review and the disruption brought by Fox News in the 80s and 90s and Trump today with his Twitter account. Yeah, National Review was a real thunderbolt when it came out. Um, not mostly ignored, but it was not something that was thought to be terribly important. Um, and I think some of the parallels that I would see between then and now is how the National Review would pick what we call talking points. And they would basically train the right wing, uh, the Republican Party to an extent, and the conservatives within, the more conservatives within the Republican Party, they would train them with a vocabulary. They would educate them about talking points. They would teach them how to counteract a liberal's argument. Um, Fox News, was, especially in the 80s and 90s, was very, very good at crafting certain talking points that conservatives would hammer home. Um, we've seen this, you know, say, for instance, with Benghazi. If you ask a conservative a question 10 years ago or not even five years ago, they would turn it to Benghazi. And why would they turn it, no matter what the question was about, you could be talking about the social welfare system and it would come down to Benghazi and Hillary. <laughs> and where does that come from? It comes from the fact that Fox News, the only thing that Fox News ever talked about was Benghazi over and over yes. and over again. I, I do agree. Um, Bill, it was Bill Crystal who said that um, reading National Review was learning how to be a conservative, you know, but it yeah. seems like that learning how to be a conservative was much more expansive back then than it is now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you might see it, what I'm more worried about, and, and I think Buckley laid the groundwork for this, although I'm, I'm not willing to quite accept that he is sort of the father of this, hmm. but, but sort of this, this love that Donald Trump has of, of claiming everything is fake news, that there's this vast conspiracy out there against him and against all great Americans, however you might want to define them. Um, I, I just don't think that Buckley was totally ready to dismiss all news outlets as being completely biased. I think more of what he was saying was that these news outlets come with certain presuppositions and we need to discuss and debate those presuppositions. Not that they're part of this grand conspiracy that's out to silent all voices. Um, I think Buckley started the movement in that direction. So I don't wanna exonerate him completely. But I think it's been taken to such far extremes, and especially with the current holder of, of the presidency, um, you know, just if something is against him, it's fake news. And what that has been doing, of course, as you well know, I mean, as the cover of Time magazine had it a year ago, is truth dead. 
Uh, is there any sort of common framework with, when, with which we can operate and discuss what is really in the best interest of the United States? And this goes back to your quotation, Toby, that you talked about the death of individualism. Um, I think that partly what this fake news thing has done is create a grand suspicion about anything that might contribute to something that is um, that is prioritizing society over the individual. Mm -hmm. I think that has huge costs, even if we want to deny um, the, the, the efficacy of the federal government, if we don't want to re reject how, how well money is spent in, the, in building ashtrays that don't crack for submarines and spending tens of thousands of dollars on that kind of stuff, we can criticize that. Um, but I think where they want this to go, and this is again in the libertarian mold of conservatism, which I would say is absolutely winning the conversation right now because it has changed the way we talk and think about America. They're getting us to prioritize, extremely prioritize our individualism over any sense of communal well-being. And do you think um, the, I mean, this is a aside, but prioritizing the individual of, over the you know, the collective, do you think that was in Norman Mailer's writings at all? Or or is it too far of an extension of Mailer? No, I think it was absolutely a key part of Mailer. But he did not want to disband the economics of the community. Mm. He wanted to keep whatever socialism we might have had in the United States, including things like the GI Bill, which he benefited from, um, all sorts of loans, so, you know, things like that. What he wanted and what he was more worried about, and what I personally think is a, is a more interesting argument, even if it's been less effective, maybe, but he did not want uh, our creative voices to be limited by the white picket fences. Mm -hmm. He wanted somebody to be able to paint their fence whatever goddamn color they wanted to paint it. He wanted a source of, he wanted the individualism of, of, of creativity, um, to be to be unleashed. And what his concern was, was that our adherence to the rules of society, our adherence towards getting that corporate job, our adherence towards rational thought and bureaucracy might end up having long-term consequences that limit the individual from any sort of free thinking. And so he was more concerned about creative output than he was about the growth of the government. Fascinating. Yeah, and in some ways you might say both these guys won. The libertarian side of Buckley has carried the weight when it comes to the economics and politics. Mm -hmm. And our sort of creative, um, anything goes artistic community has carried the weight in the aftermath of the 1960s in our in our creative and artistic world. Certainly, so is, is it like a, a vote for Barry Goldwater was a vote for fun, you know? Right, right, in some ways. Yeah. Uh, it's and that's been a vote for fun so long as you don't need quality health care. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, well, thank you very much for joining us, Kevin. Um, I know uh, I I really enjoyed it. I'm sure Toby did as well. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's my my pleasure. Have me back anytime. Uh, we will we will definitely have to keep you to that one. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. All right. from uh, from Toby, myself and Kevin, uh, thank you all for listening and uh, we uh, hope to have another podcast for you again in the near future thank you and good night. Good night.